Welcome to Episode 7 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years of experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watch. Each week... We watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global fool's cap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're analyzing the 1991 movie Thelma and Louise, directed by Ridley Scott and written by Callie Curry. Yet another movie by Ridley Scott, which we're going to have to have him on the podcast to figure out all his secrets to telling such great stories. Here's a synopsis adapted from Wikipedia. Best Friends... Thelma Dickinson, who's played by Gina Davis, and Louise Sawyer, who's played by Susan Sarandon, set out for a weekend vacation at a fishing cabin in the mountains to take a break from their dreary lives in Arkansas. Thelma, a ditzy housewife, is married to a disrespectful and controlling man, Daryl, while sharp-tongued Louise works as a waitress in a diner and is off again, on again, dating a musician named Jimmy, who's played by Michael Madsen. On the way, they stop for a drink and Thelma meets and dances with a flirtatious stranger named Harlan. When he takes her outside to the parking lot to get some fresh air, he starts kissing her and taking her clothes off without her consent. Thelma resists, but Harlan hits her and then starts raping her. Louise finds them and threatens to shoot Harlan with a gun that Thelma brought with her. Harlan stops, but as the women walk away, he yells some really bad stuff about how he should have continued to rape her, and then he insults both of them. Enraged, Luis responds by shooting him dead, and then they take off in their super cool convertible. Thelma wants to go to the police, but Luis fears that no one will ever believe their claim that Harlan attempted to rape her and subsequently will be charged with murder. They decide to go on their own, but Luis demands that they travel from Oklahoma to Mexico, but she doesn't want to go through Texas. Heading west, they come across an attractive young drifter named J.D., who's played by Brad Pitt, this film basically launched his career, who Thelma quickly falls for. Louise then contacts Jimmy and asks to wire all of her savings so that she can go to Mexico with it. But when she goes to pick it up, Jimmy's there to deliver the money in person. Jimmy also proposes to Louise, but she refuses. Meanwhile, Thelma invites JD to her room, and they sleep together. And then that's where she learns that he's actually a thief, The following morning, they discover that J.D., being the thief, (laughs) had stolen all Louise's life savings and fled. Uh, Louise is pretty distraught. That's all her money. So Thelma decides to take things in her own hands and robs a nearby convenience store. And while this is all going on, the FBI and the Arkansas State Police are actually looking for them. And the main Arkansas State Police investigator is this guy named Hal Slocum, who was played by Harvey Keitel. And so he's investigating, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And they tap Daryl's phone, and then they also discover that the reason why Louise doesn't want to go to Texas is because that's where she was raped. So Thelma tells Louise, as this all goes on, that you know she does not want to go back to Daryl, and they both promise that they want to stay together. And the final scene, as they're cornered, the point of no return for them is that they take their in their beautiful convertible and say, we're going to keep going and launch off into the Grand Canyon and fall to their demise. It's a great 
movie on so many different levels and actually kind of disturbing on so many different levels as well. And this was, you know, made in 1991 and some of the same exact issues with society are going on right now. So first, Anne, why don't you tell us what the global genre is? Well, we're pretty sure that this is a society global genre with a subgenre of quote unquote women's. We're going to have a little chat about why we call it that or whether we should call it that. It's an external genre. There's a strong underlay of action, dual, hunted, but it, it doesn't really fit the obligatory scenes and conventions for that genre, but it's there and it's part of what keeps the movie uh, so exciting. Society stories are about power and impotence, particularly groups in power and out of power, in this case, women disempowered and men with all the power. I didn't honestly see a strong internal genre for either character. I looked them over. Thelma comes out of her repressed state and finds her inner criminal. Louise doesn't so much... <laughs> inner criminal. Inner criminal. <laughs> Love it. Louise doesn't so much change as just, you know, explosively with a gun expresses her her rage and then competently deal with, you know, the consequences of, of what she created by killing Thelma's rapist. So I didn't see a real shift for either of them in terms of morality, status, or worldview, but um, I understand someone like Leslie would like to fight me on this a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna duke it out with you. Um, but, but I'm also... <laughs> I'm also open to being talked out of this or recognizing that the status internal genre is my favorite. So I know that I sometimes see it where it doesn't exist. But I see status pathetic for Thelma. She's a naive protagonist with a weak will. She experiences misfortune after misfortune. And our short-term hopes are ultimately disappointed with long-term fears being realized for her. She reminds me a lot of Uncle Billy, actually, in It's a Wonderful Life. And there's a moment I'll talk about in a little bit that really is uh, poignant for me in terms of her arc. For Louise, I see status tragic. She's a sympathetic protagonist with strength of will. She's got some sophistication. She certainly knows more about how the world works, understands it more than Thelma does. And we see that in how they both react to the rape. Thelma's like, oh, we'll just tell the police. And Louise understands that that's not going to work. So she has this sophistication. She has strength of will. Um, but she suffers misfortune in part because of the serious mistake or error in judgment, which for better or worse... <laughs> For worse, apparently, you know, she kills Harlan, and that's what sends them on this particular path. The status vibe to me is kind of underlined at a lot of different points, but particularly when Harvey Keitel's character says, brains will only get you so far and luck always runs out. I think it pretty well hits the conventions for status Genres generally, the mentor is a little shaky, but otherwise I think we're pretty good. And those notes will be in the show notes, so you can check out those and argue with me if you uh, disagree. <laughs> I can't well, argue I mean... with you. That's well, As soon as you pointed that out, it's like, oh, yeah, there it is. So, yes, thank you for that. That's great. You did yeah, my I mean, homework this... for me, Leslie. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, and I think so often in a society genre, 
the uh, internal genre of the protagonist has oh it's always some sort of status you know they're trying to search for something and that's the reason why they're pushing against the society so I, I know we wanted to discuss whether or not this genre or subgenre of women's is the the proper way to go and I know there's some discussion on that so Anne why don't you kind of start us off well it came up as Inside. why why is there not also say an African-American subgenre. And that got us to, to talking about the subgenres of society. This one has to do with a subjugated group or a disempowered group or a protected class or so, something like that. Rather than just women, why not expand the definition? Sean has talked, has talked about this as involving feminist issues, which is fair. And this certainly, this movie certainly epitomizes that. But what about other groups? Why do they not have a separate subgenre, or could we combine all of those types of ideas into a subgenre which we don't call women's, but we call something else? I was thinking about, you know, one possible way to describe this is underrepresented people, a group of people who are not represented in government, in industry, and in leadership, generally speaking. And that might be a way to describe it so that you're encompassing more groups, more people who are, you know, who are in those power struggles. I like underrepresented. And power is the key to the society genre, power and impotence. Yeah, it's the the power dynamic. There's always a class of people that are oppressing a lower class. I mean, you see this in, you know, The Handmaiden's Tale, for example, you see it in Brave New World. You see it in 1984. I mean, you see it in even this new movie that I just saw called What About Monday? What would Roots be? It fits the history. In history, yeah. right. I think that's right. where Sean puts it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Historical. Okay. That makes sense. That's, that's really great. So, Kim, how about you talk about beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff? I, I looked at it, and a lot of the times the crisis and resolution of one of the one of the acts the beginning hook or the middle build or the ending path they start to feel like the inciting incident for the next one and um and so there is a lot of that overlap and it really helps with pacing in this case it really helps with springboarding us into the next one it doesn't you know it doesn't really feel like anything resolves so much as kicks up a notch for the next one so the beginning hook you know they set out for their two-day trip to the mountains but of course when Thelma is raped in the parking lot Louise rescues her and takes action action and kills Harlan and that makes them have to shift their crisis is really what do they do now do they go to the cops or do they make a run for it Louise decides to go to Mexico and then kind of the resolution is Thelma decides to go with her you know after she has this epic call to her husband and tells him uh where to go and then decides to go with her so they're setting out on their trip they have this turning point with the attack and killing Harlan and then them shifting to decide to go to Mexico instead. The middle build is really their their trip. They're on the road. They're headed to Oklahoma City to get the money, and they meet up with JD, who ends up stealing the money, which becomes a big turning point and um, and a crisis for what are we going to do now. And it really causes Louise to have that moment of breaking down, and Thelma is able to take the lead and and step up and help her. It's definitely the midpoint. They're at the hotel. You know, they both meet up with their prospective men. And then J.D. stealing the money is really that crossover moment of that midpoint 
which causes Thelma to go active, and you really see her come into her own. And then, and then, you know, of course, she crosses over with stealing the the money from the store and and goes active. And so it's really like, how far are they going to go with this? Are they going to really become real criminals or not? Or are they just going to escape? And and so definitely upset. So going from just trying to get out of town to committing other crimes, and, and Thelma previously hadn't been a criminal, and now she is. They find out that the FBI knows that they're heading to Mexico, so that really ups the stakes for them because they thought they had anonymity um, as far as like their location and where they were going, and they find out that they are, know they're going to Mexico. The ending payoff, I think that it starts when they get pulled over for speeding and Thelma rescues Louise. Um, and basically takes the cop hostage and sticks him in his own trunk. And she crosses over to her her true calling as a criminal. And then, of course, they have their epic payback of the nasty trucker where they blow up his truck. And it is hilarious and wonderful. And then the cops catch up with them. And there's a standoff at the Grand Canyon. And, of course, rather than surrender, they hold hands and drive off the cliff to freedom. So so that's the ending payoff is really them be, you know, embracing their freedom as, as criminals and no longer under uh, any form of the patriarchy and um and choosing freedom it's a lot going on in this movie so i know how tough it was to to figure it all out but yeah i think you nailed it i know valerie you had uh some thoughts on <laughs> some of the ridiculousness yeah. of jd well <laughs> you know i really like this movie but i just can't understand why thelma and louise picked up jd you know when we first meet him he's you know, he comes up and he does ask for a ride and Louise says, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. All of that part to me played really well and I really liked it. It's when they're driving down the highway and JD is mysteriously for some reason sitting on the side of the highway and Selma actually pants a- after him and and in doing so, you know, and she sort of whimpers like a puppy begging Louise to pull over and pick him up. Now, I don't get this part because... The whole point of this movie is that, you know, Harlan has has tried to rape Thelma. And it's just so awful that they protect themselves. Louise protects them by actually shooting him. Louise has committed murder. She's on the run. She's trying to make it to Mexico by going around Texas. So if, if Thelma is really that traumatized by a, an attempted rape, and it's totally reasonable to presume that she is, why would she pant after anybody at that point and if Thelma is trying to run away from the police and get to another country where she can be safe why would she ever entertain the idea of picking up a hitchhiker and bringing him along and risking news of them getting out which is exactly what happens so I don't get that whole part and yeah I get that Brad Pitt has great abs but that's not enough <laughs> He does. He does. I or or I'm, did I'm at the time. Man. I don't know. <laughs> you yeah, know. He certainly anyway. wasn't eating carbs back then. That's <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but so, it wasn't uh, enough for me anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, Anne. You know, Valerie, I agree with you that that is the weakest thing in the whole movie. Really, I don't see how you could argue that that isn't pretty weak. I will say that the middle build is hard. Every writer knows that. So they created a character in the form of J.D. who, for one thing, was cast as you know, an extremely attractive young man, but also he's very young, he's very respectful, he epitomizes the quote-unquote harmless man. He, you know, he's Miss Louise, Miss Thelma, ma'am, you know, everything is very respectful. So since they needed something, I totally agree that they probably could have found something else, 
but this is about men versus women or the patriarchy versus women. He represents an aspect of it that, you know, the seemingly respectful man who's still a cheater and a thief and, and is going to harm them in some way. So as far as why Thelma would even feel any attraction, that I agree, there's no way. But given that they needed something, they Calicuri wrote a role showing a quote-unquote respectful man, which is the thing that Thelma needs the most at that point. Okay, fair enough. I'm, I'm yeah, still gonna I'm gonna channel my inner Sean Coyne here and say, <laughs> you know, Callie Curry needed to go deeper. She needed to just find another solution. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. and it's yeah. a random. The, the thing that bothered yeah. me about that whole thing is like it's kind of random. So they leave yeah. it. Yeah. Like it's like what are they driving in circles, and then all of a sudden, oh. Oh, there he is. <laughs> and boom, like, you're in like Flynn. You're like, huh, what? What the heck just happened? And uh, yeah, you're right. So I, yeah. I'm with you. But, in in um, the absence of that brilliant ending, that would have really yeah. stood out as weak, but you kind of forget yeah. it by the time you get to the end of this otherwise Agreed. fabulous movie. It makes me wonder if there were other scenes that got cut for the movie, you know, that maybe would have made a little bit more sense, but I don't know. Well, uh, so... Yeah obligatory scenes. Valerie, you were going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there's quite a few of them, so I will try to be succinct. The first one is an inciting incident threat to reigning power. For Thelma, this is when she goes on the trip with Louise without asking her husband's permission or even telling him that she's planning to go because he is, at the outset of the movie, he is the reigning power for Thelma. For Louise, I think her inciting incident threat to reigning power is when Harlan tries to rape Thelma. Harlan, he clearly has the power in that scene, and Louise threatens it by speaking out for women. She says, in future, when a woman is crying like that, she ain't having any fun. The next is the protagonists deny responsibility to respond. I'm assuming that's to the inciting incident threat. So Thelma, she doesn't ask Daryl if she can go on the trip. She does try twice, but he's such a jerk. And his attitude toward her is so poor that she, she can't even ask him the question. You know, first, when she asks, she uh, changes her mind and says, so, so I think, you know, how do you want your coffee or something like that? And the next one is, what do you want for supper? And, yeah, when she does try to challenge his authority by asking why people would be so interested in buying carpet on a Friday night, he belittles her by reminding her that he's the one in power. He's the regional manager. At his office, yes, but he's also the breadwinner in their home. For Louise, I found this one a bit trickier because if the challenge to power was for Louise when Harlan is trying to rape uh, Thelma, I think she does actually accept the responsibility to respond because she does threaten Harlan first and she gets him away from Thelma and then she backs off. You know, they are going to leave. So she does respond and she, she tells him that, you know, uh, women aren't having any fun when they're crying and then they're going to leave. It's only when Harlan baits her that she shoots. So I think Louise accepts responsibility, but Thelma denies it. Number three, forced to respond, the protagonists lash out according to the positions in the power hierarchy. I found this one fascinating because they both lash out 
Thelma, I think, more so than Louise, because I think Thelma's arc is much bigger than Louise's. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that I'm sort of in the the Leslie camp, that there's definitely internal (laughs) genres on the go here. So they're definitely at the bottom of the hierarchy uh, as women. And at every stage in the film, they're going against men in power. So for Thelma, first of all, she goes on the trip without asking Daryl's permission. You know, and she's so repressed that she won't even eat the whole chocolate bar. And she even pretends to smoke. She won't even actually have a cigarette. Then she wants to stop with the silver bullet. And she says, is this my vacation or isn't it? I've had it up to my ass with being sedate. You said me and you was going to get out of town for once and just really let our hair down. Well, darling, look out because my hair is coming down. She commits robbery. She assaults a police officer and puts him in the put the puts the state trooper in the trunk of his car. And finally, she's the one to suggest that they commit suicide as a way to be free. So she is progressively complicating her lashing out, which I thought was really fascinating to to look at. Louise, her character is more developed. And we talked about this uh, at the beginning. So I think, therefore, the way she lashes out is a little different. In terms of her boyfriend, her beginning lashing out is very minor, just like Thelma's. She goes out of town without telling him. And this is her way of trying to regain some of the power in the relationship. And Thelma and Louise even talk about it. In fact, it's Thelma who articulates it all, that she's going to go. And when Jimmy tries to call her, there'll be silence. And by the time they go home on Monday, Jimmy will be so happy that she's around. He'll be kissing the ground that you walk on. And, and Louise says, yeah, exactly. Then, of course, Louise shoots Harlan. And again, this is a way of trying to regain some sort of power. She's a rape victim herself, as we learn slowly throughout the course of the movie. And then Louise refuses to call the police because unlike Thelma, she understands that they are powerless. And in a society like that, justice is not necessarily going to prevail. Four, each character learns what the other antagonist's object of desire is. So Thelma's got a, a number of antagonists. It's Daryl, her husband, and he wants to control her. He never lets her, lets her out of the house. Harlan wants to have sex with her, whether she agrees or not. JD wants to steal her money. Both of them have Detective Al uh, Slocum as an antagonist, and they eventually learn that he wants to question them, and he says they want to help them. I don't think they really believe that, but that's what he says. And the truck driver is also for both of them, and he wants sex. Number five, protagonist's initial strategy to outmaneuver the antagonist fails. The initial strategy, I think, is when they refuse to call the police. Thelma suggests that, and Louise says no. They go to a coffee stop and have a coffee so Louise can think. And at that point, she says, okay, no one saw them. We're fine. All we have to do is figure out what to do. And at no point is Louise contemplating going to the police. And in fact, at the very end of the movie, she says, maybe you're right. We should have called. And Thelma says, no, you're right. That's not the world we live in. We did the right thing. So I think their their initial strategy is to not call the police. But even while they're at that coffee stop trying to figure out what to do, the police are actually at the silver bullet interrogating witnesses. And they t- this is when they talk to the uh, the waitress from the silver bullet. Number six. The protagonist, realizing he or she must change their approach to turn the power tables, reaches an all-is-lost moment. Well, Thelma's all-is-lost moment comes first, I think, and that's when the money is stolen and Louise has a, a meltdown. And Thelma realizes that even with even the power dynamic within the friendship, 
Thelma cannot be the follower anymore. She has to step up and be the leader and be the strategizer. And as a strategizer, her change of approach is to uh, commit her first crime because that's her first crime when she goes to the market and steals the money. Louise's always lost moment, I think, is when near the end of the middle build, I think, I can't remember, but it's when she finds out that the police know where they are and where they're going because she stayed on the phone too long and she kind of knows that. So they found out where she is and they know that she's trying to get to Mexico. And she says to Thelma, we're fugitives now. We've got to start acting like it because up to that point, they never really identified as criminals or as fugitives. They were more victims, I guess. Number seven, the revolution scene. This is the core event of the society story, which happens when the protagonist's gifts are expressed and power changes hands. I think this is the very last scene of the film because it's only only then when Thelma and Louise decide to drive off the cliff that they finally have power over their own lives and their own destiny. Up until this point, they're running from one version of male power after another. And um, like Anne said, you know, there's the different male characters represent the different types of power in society that that society has over these two women. And it's only right at the very end when no one has power over them anymore. And finally, number eight, the protagonists are rewarded on at least one level of satisfaction, either the extra personal, interpersonal or extra personal. I think their greatest level of satisfaction is the intrapersonal, but they also, to a lesser degree, have extrapersonal and interpersonal. So extrapersonal is what the rest of the world thinks about me, and they will always be considered criminals. However, their satisfaction that they gain is that they don't care anymore what anyone thinks of them. Intrapersonal is what will a particular person think of them. So that would be, you know, Daryl. What does Daryl think of Thelma? Or what does Jimmy think of Louise? That kind of thing. I think the satisfaction they get here, and I'm willing to be argued with on this, the waitress at the Silver Bullet, I think she would be completely supportive of Thelma and Louise. In fact, she's really the only champion that they have in the whole movie. And she tells the detective that, you know, they wouldn't do this. And anyway, Harlan had it coming. So it was sooner or later, someone was going to do it. The scene when Thelma is robbing the market and Louise is sitting out in the car, she looks into a nearby building and there's two old ladies looking out at her and there's no words. They're just looking at Louise as if they know what she's going through, as if they've been there, they can see her powerlessness and they understand it. And to a much lesser degree, we've got the detective himself, who I think he sees them as victims at first. And I think his initial desire is to help them. And I think I think he wants to help them all along. This is why he wants to go to New Mexico uh, with the FBI so that things don't get out of hand and that uh, something positive can happen to for these women. And he holds off charging them with murder for a very long time and, and just wants to question them. That's what he says. But I think where they really win is on the intrapersonal level, and that is what will they think of themselves? Because they finally are free. They've spent, especially Thelma has spent a long, the, the rest of the, the whole first part of the movie worried about what other people think. I mean, that's why she is so trapped by her husband at the beginning and why she has to actually 
state that she is officially letting her hair down. So I think now at the very end, they are completely free. No one is in charge of them anymore. They're not going to get caught. They've overcome their inner conflict and they have control over their own lives, and their own destiny, even if just for a couple of minutes while the, while they go off the cliff. Yeah. And that's it. So that's a big chunk. Eight, that's a lot of it. Yeah, <laughs> of eight obligatory scenes. <laughs> wow, that's a ton. So, Leslie, what about the conventions of a society story? So, first convention is the that there's one central character with offshoot characters that embody a multitude of that main character's personality traits. And that this was a close call for me. And when I was writing this up, I was seeing Louise as the central character. But in our discussions today, I'm thinking it's more, it is more Thelma. She changes the most. She's the one who goes from being inactive to being active. But I guess what I would say is that every character in the film represents some position on the power divide between men and women, from their romantic partners to Harlan's sister, the truck drivers, the different police officers. Harvey Keitel's character is sympathetic to their plight, certainly. And then I said, but no one's cheering them on. But Valerie, you are absolutely right that Harlan's sister, the waitress at the Silver Bullet, was definitely cheering them on. And interesting, you know, that she's a waitress. She's the one who is very similar to Louise in terms of her position and probably her experiences in life. And so that was an interesting connection. So the second convention is the big canvas. And in a society piece, this can be the internal landscape or the external setting. And I think we have both here. We have definitely a big external setting. Thelma and Louise are driving across several states. They go from Arkansas to Oklahoma. I love the line, we're, we're in Oklahoma and you want to get to Mexico. We're not going to go through Texas. <laughs> That's brilliant. So we have, we definitely have that big canvas. They end up at the Grand Canyon. So that's a big setting. But I think we also have an internal landscape of this big question, if exposing tyrants won't work, then what conditions can those who are underrepresented live with? How do you respond to it? And there's a point on that further down. And I see Anne's mentioning the Western in terms of our external setting. There are different interesting crossovers there, I think. So the third convention is a clear revolutionary point of no return moment. So this is the moment of power shifts, and it has to be clearly defined and dramatized in the story. So Louise shoots Harlan while he's attempting to rape Thelma, or it's after, more specifically, when he offends them. And what's interesting about that is that Louise is absolutely right. Like, if these are the facts presented to a jury, you know, in terms of self-defense and the use of deadly force, that these facts would not support a successful claim of self-defense. So that's an interesting side note. So for Thelma's clear revolutionary point of no return moment, to me, it's when she commits the armed robbery in Oklahoma after J.D. steals the money that they need to get to Mexico. And that's the moment where she's not just along for the ride after her friend committed murder. That's when she is committing a crime. And it seems like there's a clear shift for 
even Harvey Keitel notes that shift and that point of no return moment. So the fourth convention is the vanquished are doomed to exile. And here the power structure is not going to forgive their result. And they have tasted some freedom. Thelma and Louise can't go back to utter powerlessness that they had before. Certainly they can't go to prison. It would be so repulsive to them to submit after having this experience of freedom that They are doomed to exile in part because of their choices, but those choices being driven by the power structure. And number five is the power divide between those in power and those disenfranchised is large. Harlan's not going to stop raping Thelma, even when Louise confronts him. She has to pull out a gun. He's not going to come to his senses just because someone says, hey, she doesn't want you doing that. Daryl, Jimmy, JD, the truck drivers, the police officers, by and large, they each have power over Thelma and Louise in one way or another. It's only by taking power by force, acting contrary to the law and social conventions that they gain any autonomy at all. And <laughs> and I'm phrasing this kind of like Louise might in the movie. And good Lord, <laughs> if you can't see it before then, what the patriarchy essentially says to take down those girls in the final scene Dozens of patrol cars, police with machine guns, a helicopter, it's the FBI, it's the Arkansas police. You know, over the, a megaphone, one of the officers says, place your hands in plain view. Any failure to obey that command will be considered an act of aggression against us. We who basically have nuclear weapons to your little pop gun, we're going to see anything you do basically as an act of aggression and punish you for it. I had a much more militant explanation of that. I'll skip that part. But, <laughs> a little um, more four-letter words in there, too. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's just this power divide. Uh, I, okay, so I it's will stark. explain it in this. That Very It stark. is stark. If you don't do what you're told, ladies, we consider that an act of aggression, and we will kill you. If a man doesn't do what he's told, Harlan didn't stop. He might be considered ambitious. He's a, It's boys will be boys it's all kinds of things he kind of gets a a wink and a nod from his cohorts not all men certainly i'm not painting it that way but there are certainly large portions of the population that would be like yeah that was totally fine dude so again this is not to say that people should choose this particular method of solving their problems But this is what happens sometimes when underrepresented people don't have access to legitimate opportunities to justice or to legitimate opportunities to make their way in the world. So the final convention, the ironic win but lose or lose but win ending, Thelma and Louise don't want to be taken alive and be subject to the whims of the power structure So they die, but they are in the end free, and that's something they actively choose, and as a result, that is very satisfying, I think, both for the characters, but also for the audience. And then I just had one additional note in terms of this. It's really interesting to me that 
Ridley Scott is the director here, and he's the one who brought us Alien, which he said of that film, he wanted a film that would make men cross their legs. And there's some interesting, <laughs> there's some interesting symbolism. I want to, I kind of want to look at more of his stories in this light, just to see if it's something that is a common thread. Yeah, for sure. As a man, I did cross my legs multiple times. Like, oh, no, no, please. So. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, did, did you have any more comments on, on this? Uh, just a little further to what Leslie was saying there about how a man who behaves a certain way is seen one way. Daryl, who's actually lords his power over his wife, is actually made regional director. So he, he literally is promoted and seen as ambitious uh, in his career. And the other fun bit, if you can call it fun, it's just an underlining of the power divide in this film, is when the storm, the uh, state trooper, I, I want to call him a stormtrooper, when the state trooper <laughs> is in, is in uh, locked in his trunk, and the um, there's a black guy comes by on a bicycle, and he's got his Sony Walkman on his headphones, and he he sees what's going on. And you would think that he's going to pick up the keys that Thelma has thrown very close to the car and let the guy out. But instead, he decides to sort of stick it to the man by blowing smoke down in one of the air that holes. Is, that, so, is a, that is the chronic right there. <laughs> it, it's so. a very quiet moment. It's a very short scene, but it's almost like the, the movie in microcosm. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's awesome. Thanks. So, Anne, how about the point of view and narrative device? It's selective omniscient third person. I thought it was interesting cinematically that there were a lot of camera on a vehicle riding right alongside the car. They're literally, the point of view is someone driving in the car with Thelma and Louise. It, it was just an interesting cinematic choice. But they are able to show us scenes from other people's points of view. We see um, a scene with Thelma but not Louise and vice versa. We see a police point of view. I think Thelma's husband, we get a scene from his point of view. Mostly it's third person Thelma and Louise kind of watching them from just beside the car. Okay. How about Objects of Desire, Wants and Needs? Yeah, and and, uh, boy, I'd love some argument on this if anybody has any. (laughs) um, Society genre turns on power and impotence. So the protagonists want personal freedom to get away from the controlling uh, influence of the of the power group, which is the men in their lives, and uh, so they both want to be free. And in the same way that I had a hard time really feeling or seeing the 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 internal genre here, although I agree that there is one, I can't see a whole lot of difference between wants and needs. They want freedom. They need freedom. Someone else chime in here. To me, what the purity of that was what made the movie so strong, but weigh in anybody i was just thinking that maybe the want at the beginning of the movie is they want to just go have some fun for the weekend they don't set out to get power they just go out to have some fun but all along they really do need autonomy so i guess the subtle differences between what they're what they're trying to get based on their want versus what they really need which they end up getting i do think that the wants are freedom but i really think the needs are respect because you can get freedom without Mm -hmm. respect Essentially, they go on their girls' weekend, so they have a little bit of freedom, but the man is the men in their lives are still controlling them. But once they become powerful in terms of shot Harlan, on the run, 
robbed the liquor store, blew up the what's it called. They're now getting more respect. And that really brings it to me at the end when, I mean, there's what, a dozen cop cars and mm-hmm. automatic weapons for quote unquote two girls. I mean, that's a right. tremendous amount of respect. I think that's what they need. I mean, I really see that as respect, not only their autonomy, but the freedom for them to choose true respect and equality within the society. And and I think that's sort of what, in my mind, this whole film kind of represents. I mean, yes, they clearly made a decision that they're going to, no one's going to hold them back. But in the end, I mean, they've gained a lot of respect. You don't throw that many resources at something you don't respect. They're a threat. So, Anne, what, what about the controlling idea? The overarching theme of society stories is either on the positive side, we gain power when we expose the hypocrisy of tyrants, and on the negative side, tyrants beat back revolutions by co-opting the leaders of the underclass. So I think in this case, both the positive and negative themes are present, and I kind of fiddled with them, and here's what I came up with. Victims gain power when they take strong action against their victimizers, or let's say the victimizing class. But when the victimizers belong to an entrenched system, victory will be fleeting and internal. Or, tyranny wins over rebellion, but only at the cost of sacrificing society's most vibrant individuals. I was kind of pleased with that one. As Louise That's says, beautiful. Yeah, that is beautiful. that is beautiful. That. I it's, really like it, that. It'll one be too. in the notes. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> it'll be bolded. Let's bold it. Yeah, I'm let's bold, bold that. It. Um, <laughs> gonna bold it. Louise says a couple of times, and I think Thelma echoes it later in the in the story you get what you settle for but when you're up against a massive entrenched system you won't get what you want either you you might get what you need this is a theme for me all the time you you can't always get what you want but you get what you you can get what you need so the i i'm not sure the hypocrisy of tyrants is exposed deliberately by Thelma and Louise, but it's incidentally exposed in their journey because the tyrants basically expose themselves <laughs> um, over and over again um, as the hypocrites they are. They're weak men parading strength through violence, uh, theft, coercion of women. The one sympathetic man, played by Harvey Keitel, is overruled by the weak Stephen Tobolowsky, FBI agent, parading. You know, he's parading this massive overkill to shore up the patriarchy in one sense, but also the tyranny of the federal system over the local law enforcement. The power structures are everywhere in, yeah, in this story. Very good point. Yeah. Very, very good point. What I love about this movie, and I'm coming from a place, I was already 37 years old when this movie came out. So I think I'm old enough that I'm so, I'm so deep inside it that it's hard for me to see it from the outside. It's been a real challenge. The instant that Louise pulls the trigger, because she decides it's kind of cold-blooded, it's, pre, it's premeditated murder, you know, at that point, she's doomed herself to being a victim of the system that is so much bigger than her, her rage and is so entrenched that she doesn't stand a chance and she knows it. But she does decide to go down on her own terms, as we've been talking about. They choose their terms in the end, but it is a, the, like the greatest ironic ending of any movie ever. It it certainly is. You get ultimate freedom by sacrificing yourself, and yeah, that's that's why this movie just stands the test of time and and works really well. It's so many levels of greatness on this. So uh, next up, special scene types, tropes, clear tie-ins to other genres, and and I'll start this off because I am just was really impressed by Susan Sarandon, and 
she just plays these great characters with really strong personalities that if you're a writer and you get Susan Sarandon to play something, you're, you're in great shape. I mean, you look at her and Bull Durham and Dead Man Walking, you know, you can see these really strong female characters with a lot of pizzazz and a lot of conviction. And, and I also think some of the things in here that are really like special scene types I'm pretty sure this is the first time a selfie <laughs> was ever portrayed in a movie with the Polaroid. I could be wrong, <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway because I think so it's super awesome. cool. Because <laughs> it's like such a great selfie. And then, you know, even Gina Davis in A League of Her Own that came out after this, again, strong female character. In A League of Her Own, she played it actually originally starting off as strong and a leader, so which is really interesting. But the thing I think from a convention, you know, good example is – the secret that Louise has, um, that builds a lot of good tension. You sort of understand, you probably kind of get the idea that she may have been raped in Texas, but it's not revealed till later. So it's a really good way to sort of uncover throughout the film, like, well, why was she so pissed off at this Harlan guy? I mean, again, it's cold blood. Like, she could have walked away and she decided, no, you know what, I'm going to kill this guy. And so that was a really good way to do that as well. And then I think a, a couple of other ones, just real quickly. This so much reminds me of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Literally right after they shoot Harlan, you could drop in horses and this thing would work as a Western, like we talked a little bit about before. And again, Louise, as we've talked about before, captures why they have to go on the run and why no one will believe them. I mean, in this classic case of the patriarchy where, hey, Thelma, you were dancing with Harlan, cheek to cheek, drunk, you know, all cuddly. You know, you were at quote unquote asking for it, and they're never going to believe us that that you weren't asking for it. And that basically is the whole reason why they're sort of trying to like battle against this completely unfair, hundred percent unreasonable. You know, they have no power, and they're going to take the damn power back. And then you know, Harvey Keitel is just such an awesome actor, and this is, I think, the the only <laughs> role where he actually plays kind of a nice guy because he's you know in Reservoir Dogs, he's in Bad Lieutenant, he's in Pulp Fiction. But the way he's written in here, I think, is really is really good for a sort of a helper. You know, in the hero's journey, there's always a helper because he's trying to help at a certain level. Like, again, he's the only compassionate man. I totally agree with the Butch and Sundance comparison, but I thought it was really interesting that we've also watched another movie and discussed it in episode one. And that was Billy Elliot. Ended on a freeze frame at the at this glorious moment, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ends at on a freeze frame at a glorious, tragic, glorious moment, and so does this. And I just you cannot beat that as an ending. And I yeah, just wanted totally. to, because it it makes the story. It doesn't resolve everything. You know how it's going to go, but it it causes the story to continue to ring and ring in your mind like a big hollow bell. And I just wanted to point out that it's not strictly limited to a cinematic technique. I have read at least one novel. It's a love and war story called The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. If anyone's interested, great novel that ends the same way. So it can be done in writing, too. And it's a, if you can carry it off, man, it's fantastic. Anything else you may want to add, Anne? Or? Yeah, and I think we, everybody sees this. There's articles about it, and everyone's talking about it. Now, right yeah. now, this movie is more relevant in 2017 than it was in 1991. That is a sad fact. It's a rare instance yeah. of a great movie that has actually aged well, but for absolutely terrible reasons. And yeah. it's uh, ironic, to say the least. So there's like this extra meta ironic ending <laughs> on it about 26 years later. Yeah, I think the only thing that doesn't stand the test of time is the crappy 90s music, but we'll, we'll give it a pass I on will, that. I will agree with you on that. <laughs> 
I thought this film had a great example of an ending that was both surprising yet inevitable because you don't expect them to decide to commit suicide and (laughs) drive off the cliff. However, knowing that what they want is freedom, and I agree with what Kim was saying earlier, that their wants and needs are both about freedom, but it's a different view of what freedom is. They, They want to have control over their own lives and to stop being repressed by men. And the only way they can do that is to make that decision to to drive over the cliff. So they do actually have freedom. So it's it's inevitable that they do the one thing that they can do to to have power over themselves. But it's certainly not expected. I think there's a really great example of a setup and payoff with the trucker. Okay, so there's this guy. They keep passing him on the road. I'm pretty sure they pass him three times, which, again, is kind of a, a magic number. And at first, they think he is, oh, that's so nice. Truckers are so nice. He's letting us pass him. And, you know, Thelma, of course, is still her, her naive self. And truckers are just the nicest. And oh, then they man. pass him, and he's just oh, obscene. Man. You know, yeah. he's putting his tongue at them. He's it's making all kinds of gestures. And awful. it's, you know, yeah. it's disgusting. And he's this nasty trucker. And it's just, it's totally rude. And so then they're just all, like, shocked and offended. And, and then later they pass him again, and it's the same thing. He's just got nasty things to say to them. And then finally, at the end we're in the ending payoff now and they're like oh my god it's him and then Thelma says pass him and so they pass him and they actually stop on the side of the road and they're asking him what's up and he says are you guys ready to get serious and they're like you know (laughs) we think we are we are ready follow us and he gets his condoms out and he's ready to go he thinks he's he's in for it they teach him some manners and they they blow up his truck and I laughed so hard I was crying and it was it was perfect it was just this amazing payoff with them really taking their power back in this unique way and at least teaching some justice to at least one of the of the a-holes the trucker is a great way of looking at the way their attitudes toward men change right the first time they meet him they say oh what a gentleman because they're trying to take him at face value the second time they try to ignore him right the third time they deal with it yeah yeah That's a good, it's a very good way to, to set up and pay off something like that. Well, thanks so much for the discussion. That wraps it up for this week. Thank you, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for some really excellent editorial insights into Thelma and Louise. We hope our discussion helped you help your clients write a better society women's story. Uh, links to the fool's cap and other materials will be in the show notes. We'd also uh, like to invite our listeners to the StoryGrid editing community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations, and generally keep the conversation going. Join us next time when we'll take a look at the internal genre of morality and redemption with The Muppet Christmas Carol, which I am so looking forward to. Uh, Why not give it a look during the week and uh, follow along with us? And we will see you next week.